I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host as always, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Mianis. And coming all the way from scenic Cape Girardeau, Missouri is... Jason Crow, A former state senator from Cape Girardeau. Um, I know that you like to be called Jason now. Calling you senator is apparently insulting to you after the fact. Is that fair to say? I've, I've always been and will remain Jason. So, Jason, it's good to be here. Joe, I, I, it's good to see you. I really like your first name, by the way. Yeah, Senator Krause, Republican. I assume you still are. I, I don't <laughs> We'll hold get into that later. <laughs> he's a Whig now. And, um, you know, he's not in office anymore. But sometimes we like to bring people on the show to bring a sort of outsider's perspective. And I, I think we're in for a real treat today because we're going to we're going to have some wacky, nostalgic moments and look forward a little bit with with our guests. But for people who have just started following politics in 2013, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your journey through Missouri politics and anything in between. And also where you grew up. Yeah, sure. I, I'm no longer elected. Uh, I was term limited out in 2012, but I was born and raised in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Um, my father worked in the buildings material business, and my mother taught uh, Down Syndrome children at uh, Parkview State School and New Dawn State School in Sykeston, Missouri, and Cape Girardeau, Missouri for 32 years. Uh, she'll be the first one to tell you that uh, having done that for 32 years uh, was nothing compared to raising my brother and I. Uh, I have one younger brother. Uh, the worst thing a big brother can have, and that's a little brother that can beat him up. My brother uh, was a wrestling coach at Cape Central, and now he's an assistant principal. Uh, Josh, on numerous occasions, uh, introduced my left leg to my right ear in all of his wrestling moves. Um, <laughs> but I survived all that as, as the older brother. Um, I graduated from Cape Central High School, uh, went on to Southeast Missouri State University, where I graduated, and at the time was president of student government and started kind of getting involved in that type of aspect of public service. Uh, I then was fortunate enough to get accepted to Mizzou Law School and went to uh, University of Missouri Columbia Law School, graduated in 1998 from there with my law degree, and moved back home to Cape Girardeau, uh, where I worked for Jack Oliver's father, John Oliver, as really? a lawyer. Many okay. people may know Jack and his connection with the Bush White House and Republican politics in the St. Louis area. Yeah, but, Jack uh, is a particularly influential lawyer in Republican politics here in St. Louis. Correct. And so I went to work for his father um, in southeast Missouri. His father uh, unfortunately passed away, and uh, now I'm with a different law firm and, and have been for a number of years. But uh, I was elected to the Missouri House um, from the city of Cape Girardeau at 28 years old, uh, served two years in the minority, and then was part of that 
Republican group that for the first time in, in 54 years took over the Missouri House. So you were elected in 2000? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and you became House Majority Leader after the, 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 the Republicans took the majority. Yeah, yes. in the House. Uh, so yes. Catherine Hannaway was Speaker. Speaker. You were, right. you were was pro tem, and I was the floor leader. Yeah. What was it? What was that dynamic like? I know that there were times when you and and then Speaker Hannaway didn't always agree on stuff. But was it a cohesive oh, leadership absolutely. team? Absolutely. Yeah. Catherine's a heck of a leader. Um, she very knowledgeable, very very smart. Um, sees three dimensionally, if if you know what I mean. Um, and and was always something where. Uh, we were all dynamic and believed in what we believed, but we were able to work together and form agreements to things. Uh, mm-hmm. She and I were just not going to see eye to eye on some issues, and doesn't mean she was right, and doesn't mean I was right, yeah. uh, or anyone. Stadiums was wrong. comes just to mind. <laughs> there were some of those, which issues. is now a very pertinent issue. All yeah. of a sudden, it's like deja vu all over again. So you were elected to the Missouri Senate in two thousand and four. Correct. I think it was a multi-county seat that included Cape Girardeau and a bunch Correct. of other southeast Missourian counties. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I started following Missouri politics in 2006, so it wasn't really around in 2005. Mm-hmm. But my perception was that you were kind of a more behind-the-scenes-esque lawmaker in your first Senate term before you kind of busted out and showcased your mastery of procedure. <laughs> Is, it Was that... Is that a fair perception of what happened? And if so, what, what was what was kind of behind the, the change in mentality there? I was learning. Yeah. Um, I didn't I didn't want to do anything until I understand what I was doing. And as much you know, I I came with a unique set of background. A lot of people don't know this, but I worked for Peter Kinder when I was in law school. Worked for Ronnie White. When I was in really? law school, I was going to ask about that judge. because, you know, Ronnie White mm-hmm. now is a U.S. district, district judge, judge after yes. the kind of crucible mm-hmm. he went through. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you were watching that pretty closely. Yeah, what I was mean, what was that? What was what was kind of your perception of his latest confirmation? Uh, congratulations. I mean, he was he was I, I didn't agree with everything. He, he was a, a wonderful teacher to me in the opportunities that I had. Um, while in law school to get to talk about legal issues where I didn't know anything, and he had the patience and kindness uh, when he was a Missouri Supreme Court judge. So I I remember very fondly uh, my time getting to work there, and then I went to work for Jay Nixon Mm -hmm. as attorney general um, and learned a great deal, although I didn't have daily interactions uh, that much with with Attorney General Nixon, uh, I, I remember when when we confirmed Elena Bergen Scott to be the Director of Revenue, who was my boss mm-hmm. when I worked. How long? <laughs> shortly you, how long AG. did you work in Nixon's AG I, I did. I did a summer internship uh, with them. Was what lawyers uh, call rule certified, so I could act as a lawyer. Um, even though I wasn't a lawyer, yeah, um, with the supervision and Elaine Bergen Scott at the time was my supervisor, so it, it was a wealth of information and knowledge that I got to see and work on during my education. Uh, I, I firmly believe, you know, anyone listening, that you learn just as much outside of the classroom as you do in the classroom, and was fortunate enough to be able to have those opportunities. So even though I got to do all of that when I was, in, and I was the majority leader in the Missouri House, I had a pretty good understanding of the House, but I had no idea how the Senate worked. Did, what was kind of the? I know that you and then Speaker Rod Jetton were very. Close. <laughs> 
close. We he are. did some. I still think are. Still are. Really? Still okay. are. I, I think that there was some mini controversy that he did consulting for mm-hmm. you while mm-hmm. he was in office. Did that kind of play a role in how some of your Senate? your first term was done because maybe some of the senators that didn't like him tried to block you at the pass or did that not really have no, any impact? I, I never really wanted to pass bills, <laughs> you know? So, I, I mean, I didn't go up there thinking that the way I was going to make a difference for my community was I had to pass 75 bills a, a year or, or, or separate and apart from that, that I had to have my name on the bill. I had no problem amending stuff. I had no problem working with other people. It just, I didn't... I was never that guy or gal that had 55 framed bills in their wall with the signature pins. Um, I, I cared about the result more than I cared about the photo. So what did you see when you went particularly to, to the Senate, but, but either way, what did you see as your role as a legislator? I mean, it was very involving. It was very Okay, you want to talk just briefly about that? I mean, first and foremost, you're always supposed to represent your district and have that network and that communication. Um, I I believe the biggest dynamic that has changed, and this is just my personal belief, is without campaign limits, I I was elected when the maximum contribution you could get was $300. Okay. You know how many hands you have to shake to raise? $50,000? $50,000? Probably like 4000 <laughs> or something yeah, like that. It, I'm being it, facetious, but it, yes, continue. It, it, it's a complete different dynamic when you first get elected and you have to build the relationships and knock on the doors and do everything to raise X amount of dollars at that level. You're touching a lot of people, and then you're leaving your cell phone, you're hearing ideas. and it. So are so, you one of the Republicans <clears throat> that regrets voting a to repeal campaign finance limits at this point? Which was two thousand vote in 2008. I, I don't know if regret's the right word. I think I have definitely learned some things that I probably wasn't aware of. Unintended consequences, if, if you can believe that. Uh, to have the vote knowing what I know now, probably not the right thing to do. Um, am I leading the charge with a ballot initiative or is do I believe that it's the the worst thing ever? No, I don't. Do you think it's, because yeah, I was they just, laundered oh, money back then. I was just going <laughs> to ask because one of the things that I bring up on this show kind of commonly is one of the people that voted to repeal campaign finance limits was Chris Coster. He's one of four <laughs> Democrats in the Senate. <laughs> Where very conservative Republicans like Rob Schaff are now basically condemning their own vote. Coster pretty much has the same position, even as Democrats are kind of waving the banner of campaign finance limits. Is there, is that, am I the only one who finds that a little bit odd or am I just looking in on a very minuscule issue and trying to blow it up to more than it actually is? There's no absolutes. There's definitely positives. I mean, Chris Coster understands, I understand, the people that are in the game understand that when you had campaign limits, Legislative district committees were used and power was consolidated in individual party bosses. Mm -hmm. Without limits, that doesn't exist anymore. You've seen both parties struggle with financing because Mm -hmm. now people are investing directly in the candidates. And I want to be clear, I'm not not condemning Mm -hmm. Coster's opinion on it. When I've asked him before, he has a very reasonable argument against Mm -hmm. limits, basically that the current system or the system back then didn't work. It just... It is just not a position that's held by a lot of Democrats. Well, one of the things about donation limits, and I'm interested in your take on this, is that, as you said, it's really the lack of donation limits means that the money is going directly to the candidate. Mm-hmm. So 
aim with getting rid of campaign donation limits was the idea that the candidate would at least have control over most of the money instead of these smaller, as you mentioned, various party committees mm -hmm. who were controlling it. Um, looking at the evolution, uh, and as you mentioned, there's no absolutes. Is there things now that you think can be fixed without reinstating campaign don donation limits, or do you think that that they have to restore them, even aware of the shortcomings? Nothing is going to be perfect. So the trade-off that was made that I would probably still support is transparency. Before, there was no transparency. Um, you also had very sophisticated bundling, okay? Uh, my opponents, from time to time, would get union hall checks from the state of California. Right. What, what is a... I know they don't know who we are, but the email goes out and bundlers get together and they bundle to send to, to specific yeah. districts. Of course, so, they're still doing it. It's, yeah. just, it's just going directly to the candidate. But now it's it's transparent to the candidate. And, and you can see clearly, well, X amount of dollars came out of state, out of district, or from this individual or from this coalition group. Um, I think the media has done a fair job in trying to add that transparency uh, in reporting. That's a role that the media plays in public policy uh, to take that data that is more transparent because I don't care how good of a reporter you were back in the day with limits. It was good hard. luck it figuring was, it, it was, out. It was very hard. Right. And who control? I mean, at mm -hmm. one point, Rex Singfeld controlled over 100 committees. Mm -hmm. So I remember one time and his staff, to his credit, Sinkfeld emailed me a list of all the no, committees. He emailed so, me too. He was transparent. Yeah. He was making a mockery he, of it, that what was, the law. It, that was purposeful. He yeah, was trying right. to show he was a point. that campaign finance limits could be easily circumvented. And exactly. frankly, if limits were put in back now, especially after Citizens United, what would likely happen is there would be these super PACs that mm -hmm. were brought in. Maybe and there's less money. Well, although they're doing some of that now anyway with 501c4s. Yeah. Where we could, we could go into campaign right. finance right. limits forever, but yeah. I do want to shift gears a little right. bit. I want to play a clip from former Senator John Lamping, who, who ran for, for office and won in 2010. He told us last year how your uh, work in the Senate kind of influenced him. Part of what you do is you, you recognize uh, – talent and skill. This is a private sector. You recognize who knows what they know, and you seek them out and you seek their counsel. So from uh, most of my first two years, at the end of the Monday session, Jason and I would meet for an hour or two, and I would kind of understand his thinking. And But the first two years I was down there, uh, they didn't need me to filibuster. There was plenty of people to filibuster. That's true. But if you saw how I voted, I voted right alongside them. So the reason I wanted to use that clip is to kind of transition into your second term, where you were kind of this filibustering powerhouse at times. And you were also yes. sponsoring major pieces of legislation like a, a landmark pension bill that I'm sure we could spend a whole podcast on. But one of the things that I think was so, as a reporter, so interesting and fun to watch is you kind of put yourself in the middle of these very consequential battles, whether it be redistricting, whether it be a fight over a nuclear power plant, whether it be tax credits, whether it be Aerotropolis. And I think you kind of use the force of both your personality and the Senate procedural rules to basically either, you know, force it in a direction that you wanted or to basically kill it, like in this situation with the special session. Um, and it seemed to rub off on people like John Lamping when you left and, um, you know, also Senator Lemke was gone too. What was it like kind of during that time for you? 
It's an educational process. So let me take you all the way back because what you're really talking about is my stance on tax credits mm-hmm. uh, and, and basically Missouri taxpayer dollars being used as venture capital. Okay. That, that in essence is what happened. So let me take you all the way back. I was the architect or one of the architects for uh, a bill called uh, uh, 1556. John Dolan called it the 666 bill. That was when we cut Medicaid. All right. When I led that, I looked at the budget and I knew we had to balance the budget. It was in terrible battles with Bob Holden, who wanted who was the, the governor, then at, the governor at the time, wanted tax increases. The Republicans had just taken over the majority. There was no way the first act that we were going to do in the Republican majority was raise taxes on Missourians. But he insisted upon that. I looked at the budget, spent hours and hours, weeks and weeks, trying to educate myself on the budget and found that one area we could look at for savings is able-bodied adults on Medicaid. So we moved and reformed Medicaid. If you go back in time, you remember all of the battles. So to me, I know I did that. I looked at it. At the time, I had no idea what the state of Missouri spent on tax credits had no idea because it's off book. It's off budget. It comes out of the GR, the taxes that come into the state because it's kind of a net wash. As you pay your taxes and more money comes into the treasury, some people turn in tax credits and it comes out. It's not a line item that's shown in the budget. Tax credits are accounted for in the consensus revenue estimate. And even though we've had some trouble of recent times with Governor Nixon and the General Assembly and even the Senate and the House agreeing on what the consensus revenue estimate is, that's where tax credits were taken. When I learned, and this is something that's there, I felt it incumbent that if I was going to throw people off of welfare, for lack of a word, I also had to throw people that were millionaires and became millionaires because of government law jazz. And there was probably immense opposition to it, especially when you're talking about low-income housing tax credit, and and also to some extent the historic tax credit as well. But despite all your efforts, most Mm -hmm. of those tax credits are still in place. But they didn't grow. Okay, so but I'm interested yet in your assessment Mm -hmm. of A, your impact during your fight, and B, what you think the status is now of the state regarding tax credits and what what needs to be done in your view? In in my opinion, if you look at where we are, starting with Governor Carnahan, who created the whole tax credit model when the Hancock caps got hit. Yes. And his solution, he had two solutions, either give the money back to the taxpayers or spend the money in, in another way down in tax credits that he could control or the General Assembly could control with the executive branch in a particular area. That's how historic preservation tax credits passed. And the architects of that, Wayne Good, all of the senators in the past will tell you today if you ask them, boy, it was a mistake not putting a cap on it. Because every estimate that we got, we thought we would spend $20 million a year on that. Well, now we spend hundreds of million dollars a year. And I'm not arguing whether it has a good effect or what it's done in a particular area. What I am telling you, in the world of limited resources, you only have so many dollars. Do you want to spend those on Medicaid expansion, or do you want to spend those on historic preservation tax credits? And not only is that an argument in in a realm of state budgets that have to be balanced, but also... Can you run those tax credit programs more effectively and efficiently? There is no argument 
that Missouri's low-income housing tax credit program is the most inefficient tax credit program. I can show you example after example, and I use them in my own districts. We spent, we spent on the latest low-income housing tax credit when I left the Senate in Missouri Senate, over $150,000 an apartment unit for one apartment unit. I can build four Habitat for Humanity homes for $150,000. But in tax credits, because of the stacking, the historic preservation, everything, and that was my argument. Mm -hmm. So was I successful? I think I was successful from the standpoint that the dynamic completely shifted. You want to talk about being able to change a narrative where people actually now pay attention to the issue and weigh it out Mm -hmm. and and slowing the trajectory. Was I able to achieve everything? No, I wasn't. Because I seem to remember, like, there were people that were raising alarms about tax credits before you did, like Matt Bartle, Chuck Ferguson. But well, they were, we were of, I was all there with them. You, you I mean, it was them. at the exact same time. But I think that it really didn't become like a chorus until 2010, right. 2009, 2011. Well, well, we had interesting dynamics. You know, we had Bombardier. Yeah. And, and another interesting dynamic, and this shifts into not only tax credits, but when politicians want to use taxpayer dollars as venture capital, Mm. meaning I'm going to take your tax dollars and I'm just going to throw it on this deal. Do you consider the Aerotropolis proposal to be kind of in that line? Absolutely, because as originally proposed, it was not tied to jobs. So, So the principle that I tried to inculcate into the Senate and open up as a discussion is any type of venture capital, taxpayer dollars supporting business expansion, had to be tied to capital investment and actual jobs created. The ones that we were successful, and as much as any and more than most, people might not believe it, but the reason the Ford tax credit bill passed is because of me. But they're tied to capital investment and jobs created. The reason the special session on Airtropolis failed is because they were tied to warehouses yeah. that had no tie to any kind of job creation. Now, I kind of want to talk I kind of want to talk about like what had happened after you left because after you were termed out, not only did you leave but Senator Jim Lemke, who I think was another fierce and right. very effective filibuster lost, lost re-election. re-election. Yeah. You now had Chuck a, Ferguson Chuck left. Chuck Ferguson left as well. John he, Lamping chose not to run for re- well, he right. still stayed but then chose not to run. And for then, re-election. you know, Brian Yavis is gone mm-hmm. and Will Krause is still mm-hmm. there but he is no longer really a filibuster or he's mm-hmm. kind have diff- different priorities. I want to play another clip from, from John Lamping, kind of about what he feels is kind of at issue as far as the composition of the legislature. They're trying to become the person they want to become through through their time as a legislator. Uh, there's So it could just be for self-esteem. Uh, I think it's a career builder for a lot of people. You have a lot of, I, I, kind of like the two dominant groups are kind of the late 20, early 30-somethings in the House that really haven't established themselves in the private sector, but through their service, they'll, they'll you know, come out of the process in their late 30s, early 40s, where they have a big foot in the door somewhere. So, uh, I mean, that's obviously Lamping's perspective, that he sees one of the problems is the, the majority of legislators are either these really young, up-and-coming political aides turned politicians are you know retired people that are trying Old to folks. <laughs> trying to get self-esteem? You were kind of in that first category to be to be fair. Uh, does he have a point that one of the problems may just be the people in Jefferson City just aren't really up to snuff? Is it the lack of institutional memory? What do you think has happened since you left? I, I think it's one of the negative consequences of term limits. Quite honestly, um, 
but that's not to say term limits are abundantly evil. Um, I think, you know, there's pluses and minuses to everything. And what we try to do is we boil it down to you're either for something or against something. And what I tried to do, and, and I think what John is, is hitting on, and, and I think John always has a point, uh, very intelligent, true loss to the state of Missouri when, when he didn't run for reelection and uh, was a tremendous state senator. Um, just think the world of him. So that's the perspective I come from. But I... I, I agree. Here's the uniqueness, though. I, I don't care if you're 28 and get elected or you're 68 and get elected. If you constantly remember that you were elected to do a job and you do that job, you don't do a job thinking you'll get the next better office or you do something because you want to enter the private sector. My opinion in, in, in carrying on with John's point is I believe too many people want the next better thing. Every House member thinks they need to be Speaker uh, or needs to be in the Senate. Every Senator thinks that they need to be Governor or a statewide office holder. What I did is wherever I found myself today, I did the best job I could and I didn't worry about the future. Many people will tell you that I traded my future because I took stances uh, on, on things like Aerotropolis, on tax credits, on pension reform, on things like that. But by golly, I, I believe that that's what's needed in government. There needs to be somebody out there that says, no, yeah. we can't do all so of this. So as I mentioned before, a lot of people that were saying no are now out of the Senate, and they've been replaced by people who I think have distinctly different personalities, like trading a Brian Nieves for a Dave Schatz. While some people may not think that mm -hmm. that's a big trade because they're both Republicans, very different views on a lot of issues from, you know, road funding to methamphetamine stoppage you know i i can you can say the same thing about lamping to jill shoop very big ideological difference so what do you think the impact has been kind of on the business of the senate since people like you and lemke and lamping left i i don't know i don't follow it a whole lot that's I still, true I well in fact that's what i was that, wondering yeah. now that you're out what are you doing and do you follow it no i don't follow it um no I mean, for somebody uh, <laughs> who was so passionate about it when I when he was in it, that's yeah. I was but curious I mean, about. I, it, it's sort of in no way am I equating politicians to athletes. But how, how many football games do you think Brett Favre just gets up and watches if he can't play or anything else? I mean, I'm not I'm not involved in it anymore. I will talk to people about issues. I enjoy public policy, but. Do you think I get online and listen to Senate debate? You're crazy. Well, I kind of do that to <laughs> fall asleep sometimes or to hear like a joke. Um, I was going to play a clip of you saying unicornish bliss, but yeah. I don't know how to really put that into this podcast. Um, but well, I, but I, I mean, mean, but I remember when I was talking with you. You had to make end. it fun. When you held the whole floor for 12, you know what? 13, 14 you know hours. What? Let's, you just, let's just play that clip anyways. Phrase for the day. Unicornish mythical bliss. Just like the secretary from the Senate, Terry Spieler exudes. There was no real reason to play that clip other than <laughs> it, was, it was funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it is kind of interesting to see the shift in dynamic because I think as we kind of mentioned offline, when you were in the Senate, it was a lot of people from the House and some non-House people mm -hmm. who had been in the minority. And I think that, that there is a different mentality there to compare to the, the Senate now where it's a lot of former House members who've been in, I don't know, super majorities, but in pretty mm -hmm. large and majorities. And they've never been in a minority. Right. Yeah, I think that, right. that there has to be, I know, and the only exception may be Senate President Pro Tem 
Tom Dempsey, who I believe came in around the same mm-hmm. time as you. Yeah. So yeah, that, it, but he's in power, so you know it, it is what it is. I I always said the pro tem kills plenty of bills, mm-hmm. plenty of bills, more bills than I ever did. Mm-hmm. I just have to publicly work harder than the pro tem or the floor leader. That's true, Joe. Do you yeah, want? Yeah. Well, another? how yeah. do you think? How do you assess how the Senate operates now? To when when you were there, are there anything? I have no baseline. Um, listen, we get what we elect, and that's fine. I'm I'm not going to having been out for two years say I did it better or they did it better ten years before me or they do it better now. Um, we get the government that we vote for. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important. Liberal, Democrat, conservative, uh, independent kind of messed up those analogies, but that's okay. you know, uh, it doesn't matter who you are. Vote and participate in the process. Um, that's what I think. Do is, you at least call your, your new state senator just to say hello? Uh, I, I do. I offer, I offer It's anybody, Wayne Wallingford, by the way. Yeah, okay. Wayne Wallingford. Uh, I offer any advice to anyone if they want to call, but I will not bug them. Yeah, I think that's fair. They're, they're uh, and, and my time is gone. My time has passed. I know. I'm not going to, well, here's my editorial. I would have done it this way, or I would have done it that way. My, my life has moved now, on. Now, you're sounding like you're 90. How old are you? Yeah. I'm, How old are you? I'm, I'm 43. Yeah. So, 43. So, so what, what are you doing now? Uh, I practice law uh, in southeast Missouri. Ironically, one, what of sort the, of law? One, one of the issues that I helped pass was tort reform. Um, I do medical malpractice defense predominantly and uh, kind of put myself out of business. So I do a lot of work. I do a lot of work in northern Arkansas, uh, Blyville, Fort Smith uh, on the other side, and Jonesboro in teaching hospitals and stuff. So spend some time there, but do medical malpractice defense and other things. Well, since you're involved in the whole medic- medical mm-hmm. thing, and since you were involved in cutting Medicaid to begin with, and of course, mm-hmm. The whole Medicaid expansion thing sort of happened. Most of it's happened mm-hmm. after you left. Mm-hmm. And if you're practicing often in Arkansas where they did come up with some sort of Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. thing, do you have any observations as far as the, how that, okay, whether or not we should have Medicaid expansion or not based on your professional um experience in the last few years yeah i don't i don't i don't know really where missouri's budget numbers are now um i know kurt schaefer has an opinion and i know uh, that ryan sylvie has an opinion both of them know the budget probably is good or better than anyone else serving in the missouri senate or the missouri house for that matter and they have diametrically opposed i, I would think and and if and if i was there depending on what the coalitions were that you could you could get and I don't know the dynamics of individual senators but I, I could see a way in which you paid for Medicaid expansion with tax credit reform interesting thought we always have interesting thoughts on this it, you and, know, and, and just to put it in perspective low-income housing tax credits 1.2 billion dollars of unfunded liability because they streamed for 10 years when I left the General Assembly which was in 2012 it could be upwards of 1.6 billion now. Yeah. Have you made any thought? I know there was uh, some talk a couple years ago, back when the um, eighth district congressional seat was open briefly, uh, that you might be. I think you were even at one of the events no, I covered. No, I ran. Yep. He, he ran. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. But what I what I meant was after. I mean, there was the first round where the party officials picked the nominee. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is then the next round where people could run just because they wanted to. And 
in effect, nobody did. So right. Jason Smith ended up winning well, he re-election. Ran against, he ran against the Democratic nominee. Correct, but my was, point is— She's basically saying that there was a there was a mentality that maybe Jason Smith was going to get primaried. Obviously, and he didn't. Obviously, Peter Kinder thought about it. He didn't mm-hmm. do it. But there was a lot of encouragement for you. Yeah, I mean, Jason just put it better. But, <laughs> but, but there was a lot of people who were encouraging you to take another look at it. Was there a particular reason why you didn't? And how do you think—how how do you rate how Jason Smith has done? Um, I think Jason Smith has done a wonderful job. If you look at what is necessary and needed in the United States House of Representatives, for him to be able to build the relationships that he has done, to be on the Ways and Means Committee, to and, and listen, it's everyone knows this. It's 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 who you know in the United States House and and how you're able to get stuff done for your district. Yeah, and, and keep he's in been mind, good, Jason Smith uh, is like that. four years older than yeah, me, and yeah. he was able to get through the Missouri House leadership Absolutely. in a rocketing trajectory. And I think that his age is actually deceiving. He is very good political skills, but continue. Yeah, w- within his caucus, within the the institution as well, and he's very knowledgeable. Um, I think he's done a fine job um, where that's at. Did, did I run and lose to him? Absolutely. I think God has a plan, and I am very happy where I am, and I'm very happy with where he is. And, and the only thing you're running for is husband of the year. That's I think the you've deal won it, I made you, with my wife. You've won it two years in a row. But I do want yeah. to ask you, since we're running a little bit short on time, about this 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 kind of influx gubernatorial uh, situation. Because it was Tom Schweik versus Catherine Hannaway. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Tom Schweik. Is now is now dead, unfortunately, and now you have like people coming out of the woodwork to run against Hanaway, whether it be Mike Parson, a state senator, maybe Mike Kehoe, another state senator, Eric Greitens. Is that how you pronounce yes, his name? Yes, Yeah, but again, all these are most of these are exploratory our, committees, so they're just talking about John Bruner. I could go on, and we actually asked John Hancock, who's now the Republican uh, Party chairman of Missouri whether that's going to be kind of a, a bad thing because, you know, primaries can be dam- damaging, as we saw in 2008. And expensive. Um, this is what he had to say. Uh, you know, you'll have contrast advertising and so forth, but you're not going to, it's not going to get so personal when you've got three or four candidates in a field. When I ran in a, in a, in a four-way primary, when that thing was over, we were all friends, all of us. Do you, what do you kind of make of that perspective that maybe a multi-candidate primary won't be as negative and may as not be a two-person as, as a two-person primary? Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's going to depend on the personalities of the people that are there. Um, politicians do crazy things when all they care about is winning. So do you um, have any thoughts of who you'd like to see run or might you run no, yourself? No. Gosh, I'm not running. I think a Governor uh, Crowell would be immensely entertaining for not only Missouri, but the entire world. But. Yeah, I don't know if I'd get my own vote for that. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, the the perspective I, I bring is I'm not in that circle anymore. I don't know. And I, I'm going to pay attention. I vote. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, kind of who's going to run. I mean, it's, it's we can sit here and, and hypothetically beat beat this issue to death but filing hasn't occurred mm-hmm. right and it's it's a waste of intellectual resources to try to sit here and speculate well, on what do you think the state know. of the missouri republican party is right now because like i think when you were elected to the senate in 2005 it was in a really good position where they had the executive both chambers and they were passing all sorts of bills and I think through kind of a combination of infighting and just democratic reprisals, the party's still really strong in the legislature, but 
statewide is kind of shaky, yeah, to put it mildly. Yes. What do you kind of make of the state of the Republicans at this point? Minorities are easy to lead. Majorities are hard to lead. Um, listen, this is no different, you guys know, than the Democratic Party when they held the House and Senate and everything else. Uh, you had rural Democrats versus urban Democrats. You had pro-life Democrats versus pro-choice Democrats. You had big spending liberal Democrats and conservative Democrats. So majorities are difficult to lead. Minorities are easy. Uh, Missouri Republican Party has now shifted to the dynamic to which the Democratic Party was 20 years ago, and that is people that are probably independent are now going to run as a Republican because they think it's going to help them get elected. And that's going to last as long as Barack Obama is president. Mm -hmm. Once Barack Obama is president anymore, I think you have a possible resurgent of the Democratic Party. Yeah, I was thinking about that because I, I don't want to read too closely into primary results from 2008, but I have looked at Hillary Clinton's numbers in rural Missouri versus Barack Obama. She she like blew him out in, in rural Missouri. And I'm not saying she's going to win Missouri. I'm not saying that she's going to win rural Missouri. But if she can hold down the margins and get, you know, especially female rural voters mm -hmm. energized, that could also parlay into legislative races that are in places that are traditionally Democratic, like Howard County, Saline mm -hmm. County, uh, parts of southeast yeah. Missouri, yeah. parts of northeast Missouri. That's where I think that it's possible. Right. But it, a lot of things have to happen, basically. Well, I mean, let's be real. Uh, Barack Obama is our president. He's been wildly successful. He's won two elections. But he has done more for the Republican Party in state legislatures across this country than any Republican as that's far ever as been alive. Getting, members getting elected. them elected. Do you think it's the Republican Party has more members of House legislators than in the history of the Republican Party. I have to ask, do you think it, it, there's a racial dynamic no, to that? it's not racial any more than it was racial when George Bush was there and everyone hated George Bush and blamed him for Katrina yeah. any more than Jay Nixon is a racist because of Ferguson. That is... That is stuff that people put labels on to try to get headlines and, and to motivate them. It's policy. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's, it's policy. Mm -hmm. And people don't like Fast and Furious in outstate Missouri. They don't like those programs. They don't like the growth in government. Um, they didn't like it when George Bush did it. Mm -hmm. um, Hence and, the reason, like, in 2006, the Democrats gained a couple Senate seats and some House seats, and they won the U.S. Senate seat. Yeah, in an I, I mean, and, and where the Republican Party is nationally or where it is on a statewide, you know, deal, the Democrats have put themselves in the position because they valued minority-majority districts more than spreading the Democratic base out and redistricting. The Republicans have been very effective in every redistricting complete can, particularly on congressional that we have seen yes. of, hey, hi, Mr. Uh, Clay and Mr. Cleaver. Do you, you want to draw your own? We'll give you two districts if you give us the rest well, of the Well, that's state. an interesting fade out for us because our guest tomorrow will be Emmanuel Cleaver. There so maybe we'll ask him a little bit about that or maybe not, but we'll see. <laughs> but I just really want to thank you for coming in and coming yeah, all the way from Cape. I, I always it. I always have to, to profusely thank the the out-of-town people who drive here. And I, I have a theory that you came here because I insulted Cape Girardeau on our show with <laughs> Todd Richardson and said that Poplar Bluff was better. 
but um, mainly because you're a standout guy. Well, you know, my, my grandmother and my father were born in Poplar Bluff, so I'll claim both. Yeah, I yeah. Had a, I, as I said on another show, I had a roommate from Poplar Bluff, so <laughs> I, have, I have affinity for them. But to close us out, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And are you still on Twitter? I don't know. I couldn't tell you, you, you the tagline. Yeah, you used to have a pretty spirited Twitter account <laughs> yeah, in the day. I'm sure, I'm sure I did, but you know, now you know it what? Just, 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 just mail him a letter at this point. <laughs> Snail mail. Yeah, yeah, give it to Jason, and then he'll email it to me. I, I, will I do tra- have email. I, I will transcribe it. Uh, thank you very much, as always. And until next week, so long. So long. You got me so I don't know what I'm doing. Oh.